The 20th Century History Behind Russia's Invasion of Ukraine By Kezia Sanjel During World War II, Ukrainian nationalists saw the Nazis as liberators from Soviet oppression. Now, Russia is using that chapter to paint Ukraine as a Nazi nation. Before Russian forces fired rockets at the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, seized Chernobyl, the site of the world's worst nuclear accident, and attacked Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, Russian President Vladimir Putin shared some choice words. In an essay published on the Kremlin's website in Russian, Ukrainian, and English last July, Putin credited Soviet leaders with inventing a Ukrainian republic within the Soviet Union in 1922, forging a fictitious state unworthy of sovereignty out of historically Russian territory. After Ukraine declared its independence in 1991, the president argued, Ukrainian leaders began to mythologize and rewrite history, edit out everything that united Russia and Ukraine and refer to the period when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union as an occupation. The historical reality of modern-day Ukraine is more complex than Putin's version of events, encompassing a thousand-year history of changing religions, borders and peoples, according to the New York Times. M. Any conquests by warring factions and Ukraine's diverse geography created a complex fabric of multi-ethnic states. Over the centuries, the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires, Poland, and Lithuania have all wielded jurisdiction over Ukraine, which first asserted its modern independence in 1917, with the formation of the Ukrainian People's Republic. Russia soon wrested back control of Ukraine, making it part of the newly established Soviet Union and retaining power in the region until World War II, when Germany invaded. The debate over how to remember this wartime history, as well as its implications for Ukrainian nationalism and independence, is key to understanding the current conflict. In Putin's telling, the modern Ukrainian independence movement began not in 1917 but during World War II. Under the German occupation of Ukraine, between 1941 and 1944, some Ukrainian independence fighters aligned themselves with the Nazis, whom they viewed as saviors from Soviet oppression. Putin has drawn on this period in history to portray any Ukrainian push for sovereignty as a Nazi endeavor, says Markian Dobchansky, a historian at Harvard University's Ukrainian Research Institute. It's just a stunningly cynical attempt to fight an information war and influence people's opinions, he adds. Also omitted from this version of events are the genocide and suppression that took place under Soviet rule, most famously the Great Famine. Holodomor, which fuses the Ukrainian words for starvation and inflicting death, claimed the lives of around 3.9 million people, or approximately 13% of the Ukrainian population, in the early 1930s. A human-made famine was the direct result of Soviet policies aimed at punishing Ukrainian farmers who fought Soviet mandates to collectivize. The Soviets also waged an intense Russification campaign, persecuting Ukraine's cultural elite and elevating the Russian language and culture above all others. 
When Germany invaded in 1941, some Ukrainians, especially those in Western Ukraine, saw them as liberators, says Oksana Shevel, a political scientist at Tufts University. The Ukrainians didn't particularly want to live under the Germans so much as escape the Soviets, adds Shevel, who is the president of the nonprofit educational organization American Association for Ukrainian Studies. The broader objective was to establish an independent state, but in the process, Ukrainians also engaged in participation in the Holocaust, she says. The question for Shevel is how to treat this history. From the Soviet point of view that Putin still embraces, it's simple, she says, the Holocaust aside, Ukrainian nationalists were bad guys because they fought the Soviet state. Putin and other critics often draw on Ukrainians' wartime collaboration with the Nazis to baselessly characterize the modern country as a Nazi nation. In a 24 February speech, the Russian president deemed the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine key goals of the invasion. From the Ukrainian side of the debate, the country's wartime history is more complex. Are the nationalists bad guys because they participated in the Holocaust, Shevel asks, or good guys because they fought for independence? For Putin, even raising this question is inflammatory. Any kind of re-evaluation of the Soviet treatment of history is what Putin would consider a Nazi approach or Nazification, says Shevel. To deny the claim that Ukraine is a Nazi state isn't to downplay the Nazis' wartime actions in Ukraine. Natalie Bulski, a historian at the University of Minnesota Duluth, points out that one of the biggest massacres of the Holocaust took place just outside of Kyiv. Between 1941 and 1943, the Nazis, aided by local collaborators, shot around 70,000 to 100,000 people, many of them Jews, at Beben Yar, a ravine on the outskirts of Kyiv. According to the National World War II Museum, one in every four Jewish victims of the Holocaust was murdered in Ukraine. While Germans often think of World War II as a fight against the Russians, the majority of the fighting took place in modern-day Ukraine and Belarus, as well as large parts of Western Russia, says Dobchansky. Under the German occupation, several million Ukrainians were sent to Germany to work on farms and in factories. Still, because the Nazi racial hierarchy placed Ukrainians above Russians, the Nazis made a limited attempt to promote Ukrainian national culture in occupied territories, a move that, in turn, helped bring some of the Ukrainian nationalist movement to the German side. Those in nationalist groups certainly had anti-Semitic elements, says Bulski. But they essentially felt that, or judged that they were more likely to get Ukrainian independence under Nazi occupation than under Soviet occupation. The Nazis, she says, promised Ukrainian nationalists as much, at least after the war. But even before their defeat by the Allies in 1945, the Germans turned on some of their Ukrainian allies, including one of the country's most famous independence fighters, Stepan Bandra. In his fight against the Soviets, Bandra aligned himself with the Germans, only to end up in a concentration camp after he refused to rescind a proclamation of Ukrainian statehood in 1941. Released in 1944 to help the Nazis battle the Soviets again, Bandra survived the war, only to be poisoned by the KGB in 1959. In 2010, 
Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko awarded Bandra the title of Hero of Ukraine, but the honor was annulled a year later. This re-examination of Ukrainian participation in wartime atrocities has prompted a relatively difficult dialogue in Ukraine about the issue of complicity, says Bolsky. Putin has referenced Ukrainian nationalists in service of his political agenda of portraying modern Ukrainians as Nazis. Before Russia's 2014 invasion of Crimea, many Ukrainians viewed Bandra and other freedom fighters in a less favorable light, says Shevel. After, however, she noticed a shift, with these individuals, some of whom fought alongside the Nazis, being called heroes. The Soviets, once held up as liberators from the Nazis, were now the bad guys again. Bandra may no longer be an official hero of Ukraine, but his memory and that of other 20th century independence fighters endure. In 2015, Ukraine passed a series of decommunization laws calling for the removal of communist monuments and the renaming of public spaces in honor of Ukrainian nationalists and nationalist organizations, including those known to have participated in the Holocaust. The legislation has received pushback from scholars who see it as whitewashing or ignoring the dark sides of these movements and their activities. Shevel agrees that a complete reversal in framing is probably not the best outcome. Although the previous Soviet narrative was very one-sided, she cautions against replacing it with an equally one-sided narrative that labels Ukrainian nationalists unconditional good guys. Either way, Shevel says, the issue should be debated internally, not by a foreign invader, it's problematic, but it's a domestic debate. Dobchansky, for his part, believes Ukraine is entitled to its version of history and that Ukrainians should be allowed to choose how to present their own experiences. He praises local researchers' efforts to study the Holocaust and open their archives and notes that Ukraine's current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is Jewish. Ukraine has begun the process of confronting the darkest pages of its past, he says. In today's charged atmosphere, saying anything critical about Ukrainian nationalism or calling attention to Ukrainian nationalists' involvement with the Nazis can be seen as supporting Russia's depiction of Ukraine as a Nazi nation, Bolsky notes. This Russian narrative is nothing new. Instead, says Dobchansky, it's part of a long-term Russian information war on Ukraine. Putin's ahistorical justifications of the invasion don't surprise the scholar. What does surprise him is the outpouring of support his scene for Ukraine, with even Saturday Night Live paying tribute to the beleaguered nation. Dobchinsky theorizes that the outraged response to the invasion is tied to society's relatively recent re-examination of colonialism. Because Ukraine was successfully integrated into the Soviet Union after World War II, Dobchansky doesn't see the period leading up to Ukrainian independence in 1991 as an occupation so much as a relationship between a colony and a colonizer. By waging war on Ukraine, Putin is, in essence, trying to hold onto a colony. Russian leaders don't recognize any Ukrainian historical agency except the agency that they imagined for them, says Dobchansky. Ukraine and the world seem to be imagining something different.